Okay, and we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Chapter 3, verse 14. Now, the subject of this piece of scripture that we're going to be looking at today um, deals with what I believe is to be one of the primary things that can hold us back as Christians today, um, especially perhaps in our society and our culture. Um, And it's actually one of reproach and correction. And in parts of it, it's actually pretty fierce. Um, Might not initially ring as uh, music to your ears, but I do believe it's very important for us to hear it uh, this morning. You may ask why. Uh, Why stop and spend a bit of time looking at something where these people are being corrected um, when we're a time of new things and a positive time? We're moving forward. We've recently planted two new congregations and we're moving into a lot of new things as a church. A lot of people moving into roles uh, for the first time and kind of stepping up and doing new things. So we're very much in a position of advancement, uh, looking outwards perhaps, and maybe you may think perhaps a little less inwardly. Um, But this is why I think it's important for us to look at this this morning. And as we've been worshipping today, there's been a real sense of adoration and, and adoring God and loving him and how awesome he is. And I think that helps us. Um, Did you know, it talks about in Ephesians, that you were chose before the creation of this world. If you're a believer here today. In Corinthians, it talks about the fact that God had something massive in store for us. He had salvation marked out for us at this point. And he wanted us, destined us to become a new creation and have a new life in him. The old, completely gone. The fact that we were saved and we're in Christ, we're in Jesus this morning, if we're a believer, is no small thing. It doesn't just stop there either. Did you know that God has saved you for a purpose? He still has so much in store for us as Christians once we've been saved and called. He saved us that we might become more like Jesus. Knowing God more, in greater and deeper intimacy, worshipping glorying him, the one who created this world. And he also has a message for us to carry as believers. One that heals people and sets them free from sickness and death. Being a part of God's eternal plan. So if what God has for us in our lives and what he's called us to since the creation and before the creation of the world is so great, if what he has for us to come as believers filled with the Holy Spirit is so great then why would we ever want anything to hinder that or get in the way of it or to slow us down or to to suffocate or hold back or hinder anything that would stop us coming into all that God has called us for? And this is the essence of what is happening when God brings this correction to us. He is saying, I have so much for you. I have so much for you to become. Don't let this or anything get in the way of it. Correction is not about stopping and moving away from progress It's so we can throw things off that entangle and hinder us so we can move forward. Let's read the passage. So Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14, and it's titled in the NIV, To the Church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, 
neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father at his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is the one of seven letters that we see written at the start of Revelation to various churches. And it was a book written by John. Most believe him to be John, the son of Zebedee, the disciple. Um, and at this time, the church were being widely persecuted by the Roman Empire. And actually, as John writes this book, he's um, exiled in an island called Patmos, which I always think of being a little bit like a modern-day Guantanamo Bay for Christians or something like that. He's secluded, he's put away by the officials and uh, in that place. Now, what's more important for us to understand is a little bit about this city that he's writing to, this place called Laodicea. Now, it's neighbor of Colossae, which we are familiar with from the book of Colossians. Um, now, it was known for being a very wealthy city, because it had a strong banking industry there. That was one of the fundamental things. But in addition to that also, it had a medical school. And there's many people who've been to a medical school in our congregation, in our church, who work in the health services. So I feel at liberty to go into a little bit more detail. And apparently they had kind of a, a speciality in what is known as ophthalmology, which for the rest of us is something to do with the eyes and being able to see properly. And also, on top of this, they had a very strong textiles trade for making fabrics and etc. So this would have often gone towards making clothes. And my intention is not to give us a bit of a history lesson this morning, but actually, understanding a few things about the makeup of this city actually helps us and is pretty essential for giving us a sense of what God is saying here to the people in Laodicea and to get a real sense of the impact in which this message and these words would have had as he brought it to them. So in keeping with what I mentioned on embracing correction, it's important to recognize to whom it is that this letter is being um, addressed to. It says in verse 14 right at the outset, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now it seems like a bit of a strange strange phrase to the angel of the church, and there's a few different popular translations to it. Um, But without being distracted by that, it's very simple. At the end of the day, this was a message sent and directed immediately towards this church. And this is really important because it's the church that God addresses. Michelle brought that word this morning about um, the church being something, and us as Christians being one that God desires and he loves and he has a love for us and he is after our hearts and he's after our love. And it is the church that God loves. He's not speaking here to some kind of Christian organization. He's not speaking to a midweek prayer group or the council, or the government of that city. It's actually the church whom Jesus looks to, to lovingly instruct and guide um, with his word. And that's us. That's us today. We're part of this church. It greatly matters to God. And as this church in Laodicea is seen to be going off track, and its focus is skewed, 
His affections and their affections and energies have been diverted towards other things, and it's, they're failing to give God the glory that he rightly deserves. So here it is, the charge that Jesus brings against them. It says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is stating in no uncertain terms that this church is in a very bad state. It's not kind of the word that we often see brought on a Sunday morning during the time of worship when someone picks up the, the, the microphone. is one of strong reproach with strong words like this. And um, it can be a bit unusual for us to read this and it can jar with us that God's saying that you want, you'd rather spit them out of their mouth than be in the state that some of it is. And it is quite unusual, the language that he uses. But as I kind of alluded to earlier, the meaning of this would have been very poignant to the people in Laodicea. Now, this place was situated near two other cities, and one of them was known for having an excellent cold water supply, fresh, refreshing, nice cold water. And the other had wonderful hot um, springs that were nutrient-rich and fantastic supply that they had. But Laodicea, they didn't have a good water supply of their own. So they relied on having to pipe it in from other places, you see. And as you can imagine, hot water piped in a long distance from another city would cool down by the time it reached where they were situated. And similarly, any cold water, if that was to be piped in, you could imagine, um, you know, in this country, that it would heat up in the heat of the day. And by the time it arrived to the people in Laodicea, their water supply was tepid. It wasn't cold and refreshing. It, was, it wasn't warm. It was tepid. So this, now, what we need to understand, and how I've read this in the past, is this isn't some kind of modern, charismatic symbolism where hot is really good, on fire for God, clapping, shouting loudly, enthusiasm, and cold being somebody who's refrained, held back, disinterested, perhaps not even saved. And then we could say that Lukewarm are those who are just neither one nor the other, sat in the middle, uh, you know, refrained, um, undecided, indifferent, sat on the fence. This would make no sense. Would Jesus rather we'd been unsaved than actually be on the fringes of what God's doing? Would he rather us not be part of his kingdom and no eternal life than to actually be on the edge and hear part of the church being able to hear his gospel? No. What he's saying here, and the people would have understood, that hot water is a good thing. It's medicinal. You can wash with it. You can bathe in it. It's good. Cold water is also a good thing. You can drink it. It's refreshing. It quenches your thirst. Both hot and cold are good. What is being said here is much simpler and perhaps more blunt. Tepid water is bad. It's pretty useless. If you turn your tap on to make a drink at home, and it's not ran cold, you spit it out and you pour it away, you'd run the tap a bit more for some some nice cold water drink. And God is essentially saying that the church here is good for nothing, in the same way that their their water supply isn't much good. Why is this? How is it that this church in Laodicea has become good for nothing? They're in a hideous place. Being in the church, being saved, but living by entirely different principles. It's a lethal mixture 
of being externally seen as a church and seen as part of God's kingdom, but actually living by worldly principles, having entirely different endeavors. They're included in God's kingdom, but not functioning like they're in God's kingdom. They're aware of the truth, but they're not following the truth. In verse 17, we read them declare this about themselves. I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. They have gained money and riches. They said they lack nothing. They don't need nothing. They've got it all. You know, if we thought about ourselves in that situation, they've got the car that they want. They've got the house that they long for. They've got the giant TV. They've got the savings accounts. It's in the bank. They're lacking nothing. They believe that they don't need a thing. And let's face it, there are times that we perhaps disregard our need for God to varying degrees when things are going well in our lives, when we're not being rocked by any circumstance, when things are, by our own sort of assessment, our own judgment, going well. And it's easy for us, perhaps in Christians in this Western culture, where we do have many of the things that we want, at times, to believe this. But Jesus is bringing to them that, in fact, they're actually in the opposite situation. Jesus then describes them counter to what they say, as being wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This must surely have dropped like a lead balloon. It must have pulled the rug completely from under their feet, being in this position, saying we don't need a thing. And this is how Jesus is describing them in this letter. A people who believe that they had everything, having had a truth brought to them that completely contradicts the view of their current situation. Say again, verse 17, this is what's brought to him. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, to illustrate this a little bit, I imagine it's a bit like perhaps buying a very expensive watch, perhaps a Rolex or a Breitling or something of that nature, that is worth a lot of money. And you save and you put a huge amount of investment, a huge amount of what you have into purchasing and owning this watch. You can imagine it. Fantastic. You want to show it off. You can walk around very proud and smugly showing off this watch. And then one day, showing it to somebody who perhaps is a watchmaker or a bit of a specialist, and then letting them have a close-up, ex- um, close-up look at it, an inspection of this watch, and uh, taking it off, looking at the mark on the back, looking at the mechanism... And as you look and proudly say, you know, what do you think? What do you think to what I've bought, what I've got? And then they expose to you that actually it's a fraud, that it's not real, that it's worthless. It just looks good on the outside. But there's nothing special about the mechanism. There's nothing precious about the materials that this watch is made out of. And here Jesus is inspecting everything that these people live by, scrutinizing all that they possess and pointing out that it's all a fraud. This news would have been devastating for the people in Laodicea. To hear Jesus is targeting what they believe to be one of their best assets, the very root of what they see as their security and identity. And as I mentioned before about these three facts about the city that they're known for, they were known for banking, which insinuates something of wealth. They were known for their medical expertise. There was lots of doctors and physicians in this city. And they were eye specialists. But yet God is saying something different. 
There were textiles and fabrics produced there. They would have had an abundance of fine clothes. And God knows, you see, he knows these people. He knows their city. He knows their culture and their situations. Just as he knows ours today and all the things that we live in and the situations and circumstances that we live in. And God is saying that this is a place. It's known for its banking and its wealth. And they say they know they need nothing. Yet God is saying they're poor. This is a place known for its medical practice and work and helping people with their eyesight. But yet God is telling them that they're blind. This is a place known for producing clothing. And God is saying that they're naked. Poor, blind and naked. It's like this watchmaker identifying that the Rolex is fake, a lie. The giver of vision is exposing they're blind. The one who clothes in righteousness is calling them naked. The one who is the source of all lasting wealth and true riches that last is saying that they stand empty-handed. How could this be? How could these believers have gotten themselves into this situation? How could they have strayed so far? Because they believed that the world around them said that it could offer. They believed that it possessed the very things that they so genuinely and really needed. They do need safety and security. We as believers do need this covering. They long for beauty and health and vision and meaning and value. But what the world promises, it cannot deliver. It's powerless to deliver it. Imagine it, everything that they're trusting in, all a fake, all a con. Now, they may have gone to the extreme in this situation, and we might sit here listening to this and saying, you know, I'm not putting all of my trust in all of these things. But as we gather around the Bible here together as a church and as a family, let's use this scripture as a plumb line. Let's measure ourselves against it. Let's use it to see if there's anything in our lives Is God highlighting or exposing any motives in our lives, in your lives? Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak to us this morning. It's far better that we allow the Bible, we allow God's Word to speak to us about anything in our lives that is off kilter, that isn't right, than to carry on ignorance until eventually we might one day hit a situation where all that we put our hope and our trust in crumbles away. It's far better to actually learn the lesson before we hit a situation through the Bible. The Bible does this. And also, so sometimes circumstances can expose what we're putting our trust in in our life. And Ginny has brought a word to us as a church and as a group of churches that this nation, we're believing in it, that is going to be shaken by unprecedented events. That things are going to be shook. That what the world previously thought and our nation thought couldn't be shaken, those things are going to be shaken. And if we're putting our hope in the same things that these people in Laodicea did, then we'll find that our, the things that we trust in are shaken too. We might also find, to our own surprise, that we're stood left exposed. That our security is gone. The place, the things that we put our confidence in for our security... It's fallen away. Now, money isn't a bad thing, and nor is great wealth in itself. But if you believe that's ultimately providing your security, 
And, if, and it might not be that you're rich. It might be that you're poor, but you just long for wealth. You play the lottery. You do the scratch cards. You place the bets. You're desperate to be rich. Or maybe it's you just throw yourself into work and to your business, clocking up hours to make money. Or perhaps you're just tight. <laughs> perhaps you just don't like spending money even on things that you need. It could be many things associated with money. And also it could be perhaps you like to wear fine clothes. Perhaps you think if I look in a certain way, I'll be accepted. If I act like this, then I'll really be succeeding as a Christian. You're working on the external things. That if you do this, it will please God. Or maybe it's if I look a certain way and I act in a certain way, then I won't any longer feel filthy and dirty and shameful inside. Don't put your trust in these fickle things. Don't put your trust in the material things of this world. You see, what's really happening here, what the root of the situation is, as it so often is, is that they've fallen into idolatry, having something else as their God, something else in place as their saviour and their identity. I don't know if you've ever traded cards as a young kid, or perhaps you might be of that age that you still do. And this is like getting three of those fantastic, shiny, metallic, proper cards. You only get one on a page in your book. And then just swapping it for one normal one that you've already got. It's like making the world's worst swapsy. (laughs) In Laodicea, they've chosen to, instead of going to God for their security, they've given it to something else. They've given it to something man-made. They've given that role to something in their lives, to something else. And we're deluded if we attribute our security to wealth. We are lost if we form our identity out of what we construct. And we're misled if we believe we can have vision from our own skill and our own wisdom. Our hope does not come from something, but our hope comes from someone. Fortunately, God didn't just leave them in despair. In verse 18, we read this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. In Jesus, we find true wealth, covering of our shame and eyes that see. So what does this wealth from Jesus look like? Matthew chapter 6, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Wealth in Christ cannot be stolen. It does not decay. It does not wear out. It lasts for eternity. In Matthew, it mentions it's like a treasure hidden in a field, When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and brought that field. It is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold it. Everything he had and bought it. This gold is so valuable that a man would joyfully sell everything he owns to possess it. And when Paul writes to Timothy, he says to be rich in good deeds and to be generous so that they will lay up a treasure for themselves, a firm foundation in the coming age. This is an inheritance that can be enjoyed in a new life 
for eternity. It is incomparable in value. It's secure now and for eternity. And there is no limit to our enjoyment of it. This treasure is the salvation that Jesus has purchased for us all. And you wouldn't want to swap it for anything in the world. The clothes that Jesus provides for us, they come in one color, they're all white. He talks about them here as being white clothes. Because Jesus clothes us in righteousness. There's no blemish, they're spotless, there's no discoloring, there's nothing on it that is bad or wrong or corrupt. He makes us free of our wrongs. He makes us free of our mistakes. He frees us with his righteousness of the evil that we do in our lives and he frees us of any evil that we've had committed to us. He doesn't just make us clean externally. He doesn't make us as clean in our appearance. He doesn't just work on how we act and how we look. He cleans us and he makes us pure and beautiful on the inside. And from every way we look at it, we are righteous when we are clothed by Christ. He heals our blindness too. He gives us eyes that see. He enables us not to just see with our eyes and what we can see physically in this world around us, but he gives us faith to see the amazing things that he has for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it explains that if we're content and at home with our earthly dwelling, we will be swallowed up by this life, but we're not. We live by faith and not by sight. Don't settle for anything less. Don't be seduced like the people were in Laodicea into thinking that these things we can obtain from the world can provide us all that we need. Jesus finishes with this invitation in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. And I believe that God is knocking. He does want to be close to us in relationship. People used to eat a meal and for them in their culture it would be about sealing a deal. It would be making an agreement. But also it was about being, having time. It was a way to socialize and get to know and be intimate and close with each other. God wants to bring us in, to draw us in, to be closer to him. If we put our trust in him, nothing can shake it. Is God exposing to you anything that you're putting your trust in other than him? Is there anything that you substitute in your life instead of God? Then repent because God wants to draw you into him. Perhaps this morning you're here and you've only ever hoped in what this world can offer. You've only ever sought the things that that you see. You've only sought the things and the money and the way of dealing with the things in your life that you see around you and what can be bought and what can be worked for and what can be manipulated by your own doing. Perhaps that's all you've ever had to trust in. Do you long to live in a world that is more than just what you can see? Do you want to know the one who provides more than this world could ever, ever could? Then you need to know Jesus. Let's put our trust in him. 
Let's not be, let's not be amazed by the things of this world. Let's not be dazzled by them. Let's not think that if everything is in place, if we just work at them, then we're okay. Let's examine every part of our lives and see, are we gripping onto Jesus? Are we taking hold of him? He has it all for us. But let's not make a bad swap. Let's not exchange it for something that is so valuable. I'm going to pray.